Welcome to the Choose You Now podcast. I'm your host, Juliana Hever. Among the top 10 living vegetarian authors, Victoria Moran has written 13 books, including The Love Power Diet and Main Street Vegan. Featured twice on Oprah and voted PETA's Sexiest Vegan Over 50 in 2016, she is the founder of Main Street Vegan Academy, training vegan lifestyle coaches, educators, and entrepreneurs since 2012. Victoria is a co-founder of the Compassion Consortium, an online spiritual center for humans who honor all beings. She lives in New York City, and wait till you hear how she chooses herself. Victoria Moran, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so glad you asked. I miss you when I don't talk to you for months and months. (laughs) I feel that there's just something lost in my life, and I'm so glad today it's found. Oh, I feel the same way. You just always fill me with so much joy. You're like radiate this positive, beautiful energy. And I'm so excited to share that with my audience. And I have so much to talk to you about. So I just, I want to start with, you know, you have been such a passionate, articulate inspiration for so many years as a very prolific author, as a vegan, as a performer, as a woman. And I'll never forget the first time I saw you speak, you brought tears to my eyes. In fact, every time I hear you speak and watch you in person, especially, you bring tears to my eyes. Can you just tell us a little bit about your journey towards doing all the stuff you do, finding veganism? How did it all begin for you? Oh, my goodness. You know, somebody said to me, Juliana, a long time ago, you need to find places where you recognize yourself. And at the time, I thought she meant cafes with Wi-Fi. But what I see in retrospect is that a life that works, and certainly what's made my life work, is to find those places within myself where I recognize myself and following up on those. So I knew when I was a little tiny kid, grade school, that all I could do was words. I could write and I could speak. And I really wasn't very good at anything else. And I also knew that I had this tremendous longing for meaning and and to get answers to the big picture. You know, why are we here? What's it all about? That kind of thing. And so that quest combined with the words, which turned into becoming a writer, author, speaker, have really been what I've done with my life. And part of that quest for the bigger picture was what brought me to yoga at 17, to vegetarianism at 19, to veganism at 33, although I tried to be vegan quite a bit between 19 and 33, and I kept slipping and sliding and falling off and falling back. But ultimately, that happened. And so I've devoted my life to, on the cause front, trying to make the world a safer, kinder place for animals. And on the kind of professional front, helping people be healthier physically, mentally, and spiritually by helping them find those places uh, where they recognize themselves. 
It's beautiful. And, you know, some people might be surprised to know that you were pre-diabetic and you were a compulsive eater who, quote unquote, survived obesity. Can you share a bit about that journey? Yeah. So I was a fat kid in a fat phobic family. And if anybody has read my book, The Love Powered Diet, you'll recognize that as the first line of the book. But my dad was a, a physician. He was an ENT who had a really thriving side business as a diet doctor back in the 50s and 60s when that was really getting going. And he and my mother at, at one point had what they called in those days a reducing salon. If you've seen some of the funny old commercials or films from the 1950s of women being jostled and juggled on various belts and rollers <laughs> to lose weight, it was a place like that. And they really believed at that time that it worked. All I knew was that it didn't work for me. I was a fat kid. I was bad for business. So I was put on diets from the time I was a little girl, always swore I would never go on one as soon as I got old enough that my parents couldn't tell me what to do. But as soon as I hit adolescence, I, I joined in the, in the let's, let's make Vicky lose weight uh, game and just did all kinds of, of diets. I'm so familiar with every diet that has gone down the pike, you know, when Atkins came around for the third time. I was very familiar with the previous two. Huh? <laughs> and the previous, and Stillman, which was Atkins before there was Atkins. And then I heard there was something even as far back as the 1940s that was the very same kind of, of diet that killed a lot of animals and clogged a lot of arteries. So I just wanted desperately to be thin. And I did everything that I could to make that happen. And the harder I tried, the fatter I got, because there was always this swing back. If I'd lose weight, then I'd always gain it. And sometimes when I'd lost weight, I would go out and try to live a really rich, full life because I knew it wouldn't last. I didn't know if it would be two weeks or three months. I just knew that the time would come when I would binge again and that the weight would come back. And so I had to go out while I felt that I was presentable and, and enjoy my life because I knew that there was a limit to that. So ultimately what happened for me after all kinds of doing everything multiple times, I had my daughter and I knew two things. One was I really wanted to raise her vegan, but I wasn't able to stay vegan, as, as I said. And the other thing was I knew that I didn't want this perfect child to be raised by a practicing addict. And I knew that even though I was a teetotaler and I'd never used any drugs and I didn't gamble, I was an addict when it came to food. So with the juxtaposition of those two realities in my life, I surrendered, and I don't even know whatever other word to use, I, I gave everything to the 12-step program of Overeaters Anonymous. If they had told me to climb Mount Everest, I, I would have done it. And so that took care of the inner part. These, these cravings, these horrible urges that I couldn't control, eating food that I didn't want to eat, feeding, eating food that was unbecoming, 
meaning I pulled it out of the freezer and didn't give it time to thaw, that kind of thing. I was an addict and I am now an addict in recovery. The other thing that happened when I did that was finally through that 12-step process, I was given back the freedom of choice over what I would eat. And when I had that, I knew I wanted to be vegan and certainly healthy vegan. Back then, healthy vegan was the only kind anybody right. talked about. I mean, we didn't even well, think were about this, this other thing that is possible now, which is probably good too, because you know we have a planet to save. But anyway, uh, once I had the power to choose, I chose vegan and have never looked back. I lost uh, about 60 pounds. I don't know how much more I lost because I had stopped weighing. And the pre-diabetic condition disappeared. I was very surprised that I lost the weight. I thought that I would not binge because of the work I was doing in Overeaters Anonymous, but I thought that because of eating all those carbs, I wouldn't lose any weight either. But instead, it fell off as it never had before. But unlike every other time in the past when I'd lost weight, it stayed off and that's been 38 years. Wow. Congratulations. So you found your why. <laughs> I did. Yeah. And then you chose you now, which is what we talk about here. And that's quite a story. I, I had a very similar upbringing too with trying all the diets and oh, and being put on diets, but I can't even imagine where it's like the life of your parents. You know, that's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. And my parents had both been chubby when they were children and adolescents, and they had overcome that through willpower, both of them. And it's almost like being born into a family where the parents have recently converted to some extreme religion. Now, it's one thing to just grow up in a tradition and you do and you stay with it or you don't stay with it. But if, if your parents have just converted and they think they have seen the light, then you're going to grow up in this almost kind of cultish setting. And I think there was a little bit of that because my overweight and my at times obesity, I think my parents felt reflected poorly on them. It made them look fat. Their overcoming was somehow sullied by the fact that they had produced a child who had not overcome this thing that they found so awful. And it's interesting now with the fat liberation and, and the body positivity and, and all these things, which I, I think can go too far because certainly we know that obesity is a serious health hazard. And yet, on the other hand, I'm very glad that those movements exist because I think that when I was young, if anybody had ever told me that even though it would be very good for my health, my joints, my skin, my pancreas, my heart to lose weight, that whether I ever did or not, I was still a fully valuable human being. Nobody ever told me that. And so I believed I was valuable during those periods when I lost weight and all that value went away when I gained it back. That was never true. But what seems to be true is what we believe at the time. And that was what I believed. Wow. Um, there's so much to talk about there. I, you know, it's funny. I've been just looking at stuff, getting ready to talk to you today and trying to decide what to distill this down into our, what, 25 minutes together. 
I stumbled upon a book that you wrote way back in, I guess, 2007 that I just, I just started reading it because I didn't even know about it. And it's called The Fat, Broke, and Lonely No More, Your Personal Solution to Overeating, Overspending, and Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. And I love what you say in the intro. You say, um, let me see if I could pull it up. If you could break it off with fat, broke, and lonely by merely eating less, working harder, and being friendly, you'd have done it. So would everybody else. It's not that simple. Remember, fat, broke, and lonely looks like a straightforward description of a state of being, but it's really a way people are controlled through shame and fear. And that just seems to be the way you handle this book. I'm so excited to, to read the whole thing, but um, can you talk about that? You, you handle all of the stuff about taking care of yourself and kindness and compassion, especially growing up in that landscape. Now, that was a very interesting book to write because that's not my title. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's my book, but I didn't come up with, with the title. That was something that my editor uh, ha had the idea. He just thought fat, broken, lonely was a, a great phrase. And they were having sales meetings out there at Harper, San Francisco. And uh, they said, yeah, it is a great title. Who could write it? And he said, Victoria Moran could write it. And he called me and told me this. And I thought, well, just because I've been all those things and sometimes all at once <laughs> doesn't really make me an expert. And I, I wrestled with whether or not I could write a book with such an in-your-face title because I suffered a lot of hurt during my young life because of the weight. And society was much more cruel about it then than it was now than it is now and it was also much more unusual it was about 1980 when the pendulum started to turn and overweight started to become the norm in this country and i lost my weight in 1983 so i had been overweight and obese when nobody else was especially not <laughs> young people you are a pioneer <laughs> and so it was it, it was rough. So I always caveat, I love that book. I love everything I wrote in Fat, Broken, Lonely, No More. It's just, I don't want to be responsible for the title. But I think it, it's really true that for some of us, there are some ways that we deal with life that don't work. And sometimes they seem to be connected. So certainly a person can have an issue with weight and be fully prosperous and have wonderful relationships and all that. You know, I think that um, putting those three together is, um, is unfair. And yet I know that for me, I had problems with food because I didn't know when enough was enough. And I needed the excess to make me feel grounded and to make me feel safe. I also have had problems with money in my life because I didn't understand how to deal with that. Sometimes I've said to people, getting used to life on earth has been really difficult for me. And I've been here a really long time now. And sometimes I still think, wait a minute, how do we do that here? <laughs> and 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 relationships as well. I, I was widowed in, in my 30s. And I think a lot of people in that situation, my daughter was four years old, would want to find another partner. But 
I just desperately needed to find another partner. I needed to fill in that missing space. And I think when these basic human desires, you know, for food, for prosperity, for relationship, get distorted and become cravings instead of healthy desires, we run into trouble. And that if we can get behind some of those and change from the inside out, then those specifics and others as well start to fall away. I had a very similar experience with my books. The idiot, they're the Idiot's Guide series. And people literally get offended thinking I titled them for idiots. And I obviously didn't. It's a huge series of books. But it's just funny. That's so funny. But you made it so beautiful and you handled it so – it's just – it's a beautiful – everything you write is beautiful. Oh. You are – you are such a prolific and eloquent author. I mean, like mind-blowingly. I mean, what is this? Are you working on your 14th book now? Is that correct? I, I am. But first, I want to tell you, Juliana, that my husband is an Idiot's Guide author as well. <laughs> he, he is the co-author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Playing the Harmonica. <laughs> so we all have uh, <laughs> we all have special talents hidden away. Um Yes, I am working on my 14th book. It's called Age Like a Yogi. And that's been a really interesting story for me because as I told you, yoga was where I, I first was introduced to vegetarianism and really started me on, on this whole path. So yoga has been with me my whole life. I, I read all three books in the library when I was 17. And um, that got me started. And what's really interesting now, you know, life does these strange things to you. You say, okay, I'm going to do this. And life says, oh, goody, let's make it a lot more difficult so that it will be more interesting. So I got the idea just over a year ago to write Age Like a Yogi and got busy on the proposal and all of that. And then putting a suitcase into the overhead compartment I hurt my wrist. Oh no. And I thought it wouldn't be a big deal, but evidently wrists are difficult and it's still problematic. I mean, I'm still in therapy and I I can't take a standard yoga class. Um I can't do a downward dog, much less a handstand. And I don't know what the future holds there. It may be that yoga will always be something, the asana, the, the physical practice part that I just do by myself, for myself. And I may have to shift my relationship to that. But what is so interesting about that situation and writing Age Like a Yogi is these are the things that people run into as time passes. If, if we're really talking about growing older, but doing it like a yogi, it means folding those kinds of experiences into the mix. So it's a very spiritual book. I go through the uh, Yoga Sutras of Patanjali and apply them to daily life, contemporary life, growing older. And uh, also I get into a lot of Ayurveda as a way to help with some of the physical aspects of being over 50 and uh, it's it's very exciting. It's just an adjunct to what we do being whole food plant-based. So I'm excited. Fascinating. And good luck with that. That's It is like life will just hit you with something and shift everything. And that's where the lesson lies usually. 
so talk about healthy aging. I mean, if people want to, if don't, if anyone doesn't know what Victoria looks like, you will never believe how old she is. She always talks about it. It's mind blowing when you see her. <laughs> Can you want to talk about that? Sure. It's such a funny thing, you know. I didn't really notice being older until I was, I think, 71. I'm 72 now. Now, in Ayurveda, they say youth ends at 60. So you really want to do your very best to live healthfully before then, because that's kind of like putting money in an IRA. You put it in when you're younger so you can draw it out later. And I remember thinking, well, youth ends at 60. That's pretty generous because we live in a culture that likes to say it ends at 35. So (laughs) I like that idea. And yet I didn't really notice aging very much at all in my 60s. But I turned 70 about a month into the pandemic. And then a year later, we were still locked in (laughs) and I turned 71. And then I got this injury and then I think it started getting to me of like, oh, you know what? It really does change. And something that I wrote years ago when I was too young to have even written anything like that, this was in my book, Creating a Charmed Life, I wrote a little chapter called Age Exquisitely. And what I said then, I will stand by today because I said that the way we age exquisitely is to identify more with that part of ourselves that doesn't age than with all those parts that change as we go through life. And we can all remember images from our childhood, first date, the prom, wedding day, birth of a child, all these things that happened earlier. And I believe that we can actually slow down the aging process. This is totally not evidence-based. This is Victoria-based by bringing those memories and those times back into our consciousness. So when I do go to a yoga class and the teacher has us in yoga nidra, the deep relaxation, and they're saying, relax your toes, relax your feet, relax your calves, I always take myself back to London, 1968. I was 18 in my first yoga classes, lying there on a blanket. We didn't have sticky mats then. And listening to Stella Churfus, my first yoga teacher, she's still alive. She's 94. She teaches a yoga class every week for seniors. And I can hear her saying, relax your toes, relax your feet, relax your calves. And during that period of time, I'm not 68, 70, 72, whatever it is. I'm 18 and I'm in London listening to the voice of my first teacher. I happen to believe that during that time, I am rejuvenating. And just so that I'm not completely off in the stratosphere somewhere, because I realize I am talking to a scientist, There have been some studies on similar things. One of my favorites was when they took people in a nursing home and they outfitted everything the way that it would have been 40 years earlier. So magazines, newspapers, books, clothing, food, 
everything was the way it was 40 years earlier. They did this for, I believe, six weeks. And at the end of that time, the health status of these residents had changed markedly. And they were looking at things like uh, cholesterol, body mass index, blood pressure, joint flexibility. It was quite astounding. And I feel that I do a little something like that during Yoga Nidra. So just to remember that whatever you see in the mirror and whatever your driver's license tells you, that young girl that had whatever dreams and ambitions and ideas that she had is still within you. Draw on her and it won't mean that you'll live forever and it won't mean that your hair will never turn white or that you'll never get a wrist injury that seems to last forever. But what it will mean is you'll have that youthful energy so that you can be one of those old people who lights up a room. And uh, it also helps to have some role models like that. Victoria, you light up a room. You are so, so inspiring. How do you personally choose you now? What do you eat in a day? How do you take care of you? How do you fill your that space for yourself? Well, a lot of it depends upon how good I feel about myself. I think that somebody had said, what what you don't know, you teach. So I have written all of these lifestyle books, self-help books, because I needed help. <laughs> and so I needed to find out what to do. And, and I did and wrote about them. So um, in, in an ideal world, and I don't want to say, oh, this is what I do every day because I'm really perfect, because I'm not. But in an ideal world, I get up and I drink water with lemon in it because hydration is one of those things. I would say hydration and exercise are the two healthy things that I've always had the most trouble with once I got over the compulsive eating. And so, so I do the lemon water and then I move and I get to the gym like right that minute because if I've been up for very long and remember how much I don't want to go to the gym, I will find a reason not to go. So when I'm there, I, I do a little bit of yoga because that not only wakes me up and wakes up the body, and it's so important as you get older to have that flexibility because otherwise you stiffen up and nothing else is going to work. So the little bit of yoga, then I bounce on one of those bouncy balls because that's good for the lymphatic system. And then I, I do the treadmill and then I do, I just call it my daily dozen. And I know with um, weight training and that you're supposed to do every other day and you're supposed to, you know, change off upper and lower body. And maybe if I get a trainer at some point, I've had them in the past, we'll do it that way. But for myself, because I'm not a disciplined enough person when it comes to exercise to make that every other day thing work, I just have my daily dozen and the weights aren't heavy enough that I think it's going to cause any trouble. And I also know that some days I don't get to it. You know, I've got an appointment or whatever. But on the days when I do weights, I do the weights that I can do with my wrist, with whatever. And the whole thing takes about 90 minutes. And, and then I'm good. You know, it's like, okay, you got it. You're good for the day. And then for, for breakfast... It, it just depends on how ripe the bananas are. If the bananas are perfectly <laughs> ripe, 
then I'll have some kind of smoothie, or maybe I will have an Ayurvedic chocolate shake, which is all these amazing spices like cinnamon, clove, cardamom, uh, mace, nutmeg, all the kind of uh, Christmas cookie spices, uh, and some uh, cacao powder. And that's just, that's my favorite because, you know, I was a little girl who was never allowed to have a chocolate shake. So to get to have one for breakfast is cool. And, um, and then we head for the doggy cafe. We were talking about that uh, before the show. They have a, a cafe called the Black Lab Cafe. It's a coffee house for uh, humans and animals, humans and dogs. And so that is just very healing for me because I love animals. And just to be around all those dogs, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to work. And I'll have herbal tea or, or green tea um, while I'm there. And lunch is in the crock pot while I am at the dog cafe. And very often my lunch is something called kitchari, which is an Ayurvedic healing dish, which is based on a grain, often rice, but it can be something different. Today I had quinoa and and a bean, uh, usually a little small bean because Ayurveda is very big on digestion and what digests easily. So split mung beans or uh, baby lentils, something like that whatever vegetables happen to be around and and wonderful spices kind of curry spices so a mustard seed cardamom seed cumin ginger cilantro all all that kind of stuff and then i come back from the doggy cafe and either make a little salad or steam some green veggies uh to to go with that and uh, you know see my husband touch base there And um, in the afternoon, I I try to do a second meditation. I think I left that out of the front part of the day, but I do uh, try to meditate first thing in the morning. They say that the most ideal time to meditate is before the sun rises, but now we've got permanent daylight savings. So the sun rises really early (laughs) and that's a little bit tougher to do. So Evening time meditation, very light early supper. Again, this is an Ayurvedic thing. You don't want to have a big meal and and go to bed with all of that undigested food. So I, I try to eat by six o'clock, and uh, and you know not very big like um, uh, soup and maybe some really good bread. I have a wonderful recipe for scones that are oil free and gluten free and vegan. <laughs> And that's really nice. And then I do try to turn off the electronics fairly early. 8.30 is my goal. And that's hard because, you know, sometimes the show on TV is really enticing. <laughs> but uh, but I try to do that because I want to have that final hour to wind down and, you know, do all the f- face stuff and... <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I always do a warm sesame oil on, on my hands and, and feet before bed uh, to, to help with sleep and to help kind of calm um, the body type that I have is one that tends to be a little bit flighty, creative and uh, excited, but sometimes a little bit hard to keep down on the earth and, and the oil massage helps with that. And then uh, try to be in bed by 9.30. Perfect. Victoria, my dear friend, thank you for sharing your beautiful light. I love you so much. I really hope we get to hug in person soon. 
That would be amazing. (laughs) I can't encourage you to read more of Victoria's work and listen to her podcast. She's absolutely the light that she represents. If you are inspired and enjoy the Choose You Now podcast, become a member of our Patreon page, patreon.com slash choose you now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash choose you now to have access to exclusive content, including finding out about Victoria's MEND program. Rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to the show, and send us an email with your questions and comments at chooseyounowpodcast at gmail.com. For nutrition services and more information, visit me at plantbaseddietitian.com. I invite you to choose yourself now, and I'm signing off with lots of leafy green love.